Bookstew viewers. I'm so happy to have you meet someone you've already met before. This is Maya Alexandri, and she's been on the show once before with a completely different book. Maya is my first author who's returned with her second book, and there's going to be a series of writers joining me throughout 2019 who uh, have been published a second time, and I'm just so excited. In fact, I'm at this point booked through October of 2019, which is awesome. So I have a lot of great shows coming up next year. But first of all, I want to say to Maya, thank you for coming all the way up from <laughs> Queens, New York, and for putting aside your studies in medical school for a day to join me on Books Too. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Eileen. So um, your new book is called The Plague Cycle, and I'd like you to hold it up because it's a little bit of a different format than we're used to. Maya's first book was um, basically a fictionalization or kind of an enhancement of the story of Isaac Dennison, who was um, who you're familiar with when Meryl Streep played her in Out of Africa, the movie. And uh, I hadn't known or read much about Isaac Dennison, and since Maya introduced me to her, I've actually read one of her books. So this, but this is a really different um, book than than uh, the Reluctant Husband? <laughs> the Celebration the Husband. The Celebration Husband. Sorry, I'll get that oh, right. Totally fine. This one's called The Plague Cycle, and it's a series of six linked stories. Um, Maya, when you, you open the, first of all, on the cover, we see what looks like legs and a sail. Can you tell us a little bit about the cover? Yes, the cover is exactly as you say. It's a, a young sailor. Um, off Lamu Island in Kenya, in the Indian Ocean. And how did you come to be there? Well, I used to live in Kenya, um, and uh, on a, uh, a vacation that I took to Lamu Island, I took that photo um, on the boat that I was on. And um, you've lived probably in more places than anyone I know has <laughs> lived in, and this, the plague cycle does take place in Africa. Is, I read it and I wasn't sure if it was a specific country or kind of an amalgamation. So it is a bit of an imaginary landscape, so that ambiguity is intentional. Um, there are references that would suggest that they're actually in South Sudan uh -huh. um, in an epidemic quarantine camp in South Sudan. Um, but uh, a lot of people who've read the book have just kind of felt like it was a uh, an imaginary or sort of unidentified uh, landscape, which is also uh, intentional to, to you know create the sense of destabilization of like where are we? Oh, oh okay, so that's that's an interesting way to do it. Um, how did linked stories come to you as as a delivery method? So these stories actually arose out of. Um, an interdisciplinary arts event that I was organizing with a group of people in Baltimore. And the event was a series. There were six events. And at each of the events, I uh, wrote a story to perform. And so the six stories of the plague cycle were the six stories that I wrote for these events. And after I wrote the first story, when I started thinking about the second story, I, I felt that I wanted to continue um, 
the storyline that I'd begun in the first story. And so I just decided that the six stories for this event would all be related to the same location and core group of characters. Um, and that's how it came to be. So did the event bring about the book or did the book bring about the event? The event definitely brought about the book. Were you expecting or were you thinking, hmm, I really want to write another book or were you too busy doing other things? So in fact, I had written another book, um, uh, which my agent is currently trying to sell. <laughs> so I, I wasn't feeling like, oh, I need to get another book out there. Um, it was after the six events were over that I looked at the six length short stories and I thought, you know, this could be a collection. So it was almost an afterthought. And uh, have you actually been in a camp like this? So I have not been in an epidemic quarantine camp for disease, but I have been in internally displaced persons camps following disasters, uh, like earthquakes. And then, what, so what made you focus on a camp that was treating um, an infectious disease? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> we're all susceptible to infectious disease. It's a universal vulnerability. And pandemics are diseases that go around the world. Um, and so, uh, and quarantine is actually something that we do for infectious disease still to this day. Um, so, I was interested in this particular condition of people who were isolated because of a, a universal threat. Um, they were isolating themselves for the good of everyone else. Um, and then the people who were caring for the people who were isolated were choosing to be isolated for the good of everyone else, but putting themselves at risk. And so that kind of um, microcosm environment I felt was very fertile um, for exploring the, the, the stories that I wanted to explore in the, in the plague cycle. And in the cycle, the main character seems to be uh, a man who is responsible for uh, digging graves and burials, but also for maintaining the water, mechanically maintaining the water supply. How did you focus on or how did you end up focusing on that one character? Like he's consistent. There are a couple of consistent people, the camp director, uh, the medical director, through all the stories, but he's really the, everything is seen through his eyes. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Um, so I was interested in the person who buries the bodies. You know, both metaphorically, you know, when we say about a person who really knows something, we say they know where the bodies are buried. Ah. Um, liter in a literary lineage, Yorick is the, you know, skull that Hamlet digs up in, in, um, in Hamlet. Um, and uh, the idea of like exhuming, um, uh, both burying and exhuming uh, was was an was an interesting um, act that I felt was like important throughout all of the stories, um, both literally and metaphorically. What we bury about ourselves, what we allow mm. to come to the surface, um, and then in a camp, you know, the person who does these kinds of jobs 
Um, you know, he's not just going to be burying bodies because that's not something you're doing every day, but there's also these other odd jobs. And so he's the logistics manager. He's in right. charge of like uh, getting things from point A to B and tracking the costs and things like that. Um, and I was interested, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like glamorous work, but it's really necessary work. Um, and that's what I was interested in, the, the kinds of people and roles and occupations that, that kind of maybe nobody wants to do that aren't the heroes, but that without them nothing else gets done. Um, and in the book, there's also a, a metaphor that's drawn um, with the aardvark being one of the foundational animals of the ecosystem in the bush. The aardvark digs a burrow every night when and it's creates eating. environments for smaller animals. Other animals to live in, right. right? No animal that lives in a burrow digs a burrow. They all live in a burrow that an aardvark dug, huh. right? And so in one of the stories, there's a, there's a line about um, uh, the foundation um, being small and well-purposed. Hmm. You know, without this foundation, everything else collapses. But when people think about an animal that they want to be, nobody says, I want to be an aardvark. <laughs> well, unless you want to be first in the alphabet. That would be the only That's reason the why. Only, exactly, right. So in the, um, in the opening dedication, you actually have made the dedication out to three different people. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes. Thank you for asking about that. Um, would it be okay if I read the dedication? Sure, absolutely. So the book is dedicated to Dr. Sheikh Humar Khan and Chief Nurse Mbalu Fani, formerly of Sierra Leone's Kenema Government Hospital, who died in tireless service treating those infected with Ebola virus and to Tayeb Sali, journalist, novelist, wise, far-seeing poet of the power of compassion. Um, so Dr. Khan and Nurse Fani were um, uh, two people who died in 2014 in the, in the Ebola outbreak epidemic in Sierra Leone. Um, Dr. Khan was Sierra Leone's only infectious disease doctor. And he had started um, the infectious disease unit. It was an Ebola unit um, at Kenema Government Hospital. And Chief Nurse Fani staffed it. Um, and uh, they both became infected with Ebola. And when Dr. Khan knew that he was infected with Ebola, he went to another hospital where he was not going to get the same kind of care because they didn't have a particular unit. But he didn't want to demoralize his staff. And so he died in another hospital. And Chief Nurse Fani did something similar. She got in bed in the unit, but told everybody that she had malaria and, and died on, on the unit. Um, and I found their stories, you know, it's kind of a very uh, ambivalent thing to say, you know, wow, look at this opportunity for service. Uh, that these two people rose to the occasion to accept this opportunity to serve um, their communities and their societies. Um, you know, sort of a, a mixed blessing to have the opportunity for that kind of service, right? But to, to, to watch these people rise to this occasion, I just thought, wow. Um, you know, I found it very humbling. 
Tayeb Sali is also an extraordinary individual. He wrote a, a novel that's the most important novel in my life. It's called Season of Migration to the North. It was written in Arabic. I read it in translation in English. I've read it more times than I've read any other novel. Um, it's really an extraordinary work. He is Sudanese, um, but he spent much of his life in um, Paris working for UNESCO. And um, the doctor in the plague cycle is named for him, is named Dr. Sali. Um, and uh, Tayeb Sal's vision of uh, the capacity of, of human beings to, um, to relate to one another is, 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 is really extraordinary. Season of Migration of the North is about polarities. It's about North and South. It's about colonizers and colonized populations men and women, black and white, Muslims and non-Muslims. It's so far ahead of its time. Um, when was it written? In the 60s. Oh. Yeah, uh, it's so far ahead of its time. And its vision of um, people's capacity to transcend these polarities and connect universally as human animals is really kind of, um, it's been a very influential um, vision. Uh, that, that he set forth in this novel. So I, was, I felt like I was working under the blessings of these, these great saints uh, um, when I was writing this, these stories. Oh, I think, I think that's, uh, those are wonderful dedications. Usually it just says to my husband or my wife or my kids <laughs> or my dog or something like that. Yeah, I, I knew there was something special about um, the dedications. Also, in... Um, within, scattered within the book are some pictures. Did you take those pictures? I did take those photographs. Um, the vision for the way the book looks, including its size, um, my publisher is Spoyton Doival, which is a really special publisher. Um, Spoyton Doival is the name of a, um, like a... A river? Uh... No, it's actually like a neighborhood in New York, and it comes from like the ancient, I mean the ancient, the, the Dutch, you know, back when New York was New Amsterdam. Uh, Spoyton Doival means the spinning, the whirlwind devil. Oh. Um, and it was a uh, name of a neighborhood in New York. It's a, it's a fantastic publisher. It's about 35, 40 years old, so long independent publishing history. And uh, a lot of the list is poets, so, so I'm very oh. humbled flattered to be in the company of poets. Um, and the publishing house, uh, um, so the people there are pretty aesthetically sophisticated and they had the vision for uh, a, a, a small four by six book, you know, something intimate, but also like a very beautiful thing that was an artifact. I was thinking of that when, um, when you sent it to me because of course I wasn't expecting something that small. And I was thinking that it was the perfect size for a traveler to tuck in anywhere into a back pocket, into a jacket pocket, into a backpack. And it's just um, the way you have the six stories, you don't have to absorb all the stories at once unless you're like me and you um, want to make sure that you really have read and understood the book before I bring you on the show. <laughs> but I just, I thought it, it's compact size and the cover make it like almost like a, a spiritual tract kind of. And I'm not from the most spiritual, so. But I thought it was a very attractive package. And another thing I want to tell our readers about is that um, at the beginning of each of the six stories is a question. 
And I've never seen a book that had that in it. So I'm just going to read the questions aloud because I thought they were all really challenging questions. The first is, can I defend myself without hurting others? The second, is brutality good for me? Third, can I thrive in a pathological environment? Which obviously these, this camp was. Fourth is, why am I attracted to stimulation that destabilizes me? Which is, to me was the most intriguing question. Fifth was, can I be in balance with my ecosystem and not be lonely? And the last one was, if I love myself, does fame matter? So uh, tell us about, about these questions, and then we'll get a little bit into one of the stories. So the questions are themselves an artifact from the arts event that the stories grew out of. So the the interdisciplinary arts event that, that I was part of a team that organized in, in, in Baltimore it was called Amplified Cactus. And the idea was that um, at each of the six events, all of the art, music, paintings, poems, short stories, dances, was uh, created in response to the same question. Who wrote the questions? Did I you, did. You wrote all. Six I wrote of all the six questions? questions. So then, so that's. So then, what was the progression from the questions to each story? So you kind of had a. Did you write the story with the question yes. in mind to answer the question you were asking? Absolutely. So each of the six stories is written in response to the question that precedes it in the book. So are these questions you have been pondering for a while? So that's a great, that's a great question, Eileen. I um, probably was pondering them subconsciously because when I wrote them down, I didn't think about them. I was, I was just thinking, you know, it would be good for us all to make art around the same questions. Here are some examples. And then I wrote six questions, emailed them off to my co-organizers, and I was really surprised by the response everyone had to them. Um, they all, you know, I was thinking, you know, I was like, let me know your feedback, contribute your own questions. You know, I was thinking this was going to be more of a, a, a group contribution process of developing the questions. Everybody wrote back, well, we love these questions. <laughs> well, I mean, because they really, they're really pretty amazing. And I think um, some of them are very specific to you, because what I know of you, um, of course, your you know your experience in a displaced person camp, um, the fact that you've traveled so ar around so much of the world, places that most of us will will never go to, Africa, the stands, you lived in China, um, and in each of those places, you were probably very aware of the, the dangers to the physical environment that were going on. Um, and then, of course, if I love myself, does fame matter? It has to be a question that anybody who puts something out for the public has to ask themselves. Because whether we all con confess or profess to want fame and recognition, we all do. It's just a matter of 
of degrees because we all, um, I think we all contain this a need for approval. And, and so I think, you know, as a writer, and now you also have a book that's not been picked up yet, you know, that, that I would think a writer wants to get their writing out into the world. That's of course true. A writer wants to get their writing out into the world because really, um, in my view, writing isn't complete without the reader, right? Um, it's, uh, it's almost like the art itself is the story coming alive off the page and that can't happen without the reader. So it's not, it's not as if I can complete this by myself, right? So, um, so I agree with that, but fame and, and getting the work out there are kind of different questions. Um, I do think that fame is really quite an ambivalent thing. I, I think uh, it really ruins people's lives and it's ruined a lot of artists' capacity to work. Mm -hmm. And for an artist, the most important thing is to be able to do your work. Um, so, uh, you know, there have been so many examples of Nobel Prize winners who, in literature, after they win the prize, they just, you know, they can't produce anything right. after that. Um, and these days, in complete lack of privacy, if you become famous for anything Absolutely. At all. And this was actually something that, you know, I mean, it's a theme, a theme that a lot of people have worked on. Noel Coward, in, in particular, uh, was particularly acute on the ruination of an artist by success. You know, mm -hmm. the, the play Design for Living is basically about that. Um, but I was also really struck, I think in that question, I was really struck, there's a, a World War I British poet, Rupert Brooks. Yeah. And um, I'm, <clears throat> I think I'm gonna misquote this, so forgive me, but I, I, this is gonna be sort of uh, um, uh, in the general approximation. There, there was a line that resonated with me from his poetry about uh, taking for yourself an anonymous grave, oh. laying oneself down in an anonymous grave. Um, and uh, sounds good. Like I, I really felt like, yeah, you know, understanding my place in the world, I'm, you know, part of an enormous, vast ecosystem of this planet in this universe, you know, getting to just be returned to those basic elements. Well, that's certainly a theme in yeah. the book with your main character being a gravedigger. And in several of the stories, people um, are buried, asked to be buried. Um, so I, I can, and the, so the earth, the power of the earth really, really comes through in the stories. So that's going to lead me to ask you to read a few pages. Of course. Um, I'm sure that, well, I would bet it really, that this particular story that you're um, going to be reading from Ghost Limbs, I would think would be one of the most um, cherished of the stories because uh, as I was reading it, I had an image of the play Angels in America and of the giant angel that hovers over the man who has AIDS. So um, I'd like you to start, well, maybe give us a little background on the story itself because you're not going to read the whole story. So um, there is, or I'll give a little background and you can add in, there's a patient in the quarantine hospital um, 
one of the patients reports that they have been treated during the night. Um, their medical uh, records have been signed off on. They've been given medication um, by an angel. And the medical staff, of course, is like, yeah, right, you were delusional or whatever. And uh, then as you go on further in the story, starting from page 55, the patient who the staff is kind of interrogating says, I woke up with all these arms. So can you pick it up from there? Sure. sure. So I just want to clarify that the patient who says that is not the patient who is treated. But, I, but actually the staff like goes to sit in the ward overnight and they see another patient. Right walking around. So that's the person that they're um, talking to and asking her. Um, she's a female patient. Um, she herself had been a patient at a different camp. She had had Ebola and had been in a coma. And now so she's telling them, I woke up with all these arms, she murmured. We all of us required a lapse to comprehend her sentence. It was so unexpected. Accepting that we had heard her correctly, we scrutinized her. She had two arms. She wrapped them around her trunk as if in a desperate hug. I see two arms, the head of security said. The normal number. There are nine on each side, she said, with absolute resolution and for a person who speaks with such conviction, it is so. The staff at Beit Dakatra could not see them either. I begged and begged, saw them off. Nobody wants a woman with 18 arms. A monster is such a thing. I pleaded with the doctor there, but he called me crazy, and because my fever broke, he sent me away. I walked all the way back to my village, but they did not want me there. To them, all who contract the plague die. Those who return might be ghosts or demons. My heart contracted at her words. I have known the same rejection. It is like the sting of an acid scorpion. It corrodes for a long time. And she looked around her almost as if evaluating an escape. And she looked at the camp director pleadingly as if he might be able to help her say this difficult thing. He made an expression inviting her speech. It seemed to prompt her. And the arms demand things. You understand, I have no family now. In my village I carry water, but the arms do not accept that. They are capable, strong arms. They call for work that is worthy. And I am immune now. I may care for the afflicted without risk. So I walked to a new village where the plague was new. When the quarantine transport came, I played a patient and it brought me here. I sleep at day so I do not trouble the staff and I wake at night to tend to the patients. This is the service the arms require of me. She addressed the camp director in a piteous voice. Please do not send me away like the last camp. Let me serve. Give my bed to an epidemic patient. I will sleep on the floor. It is enough for me. The patient hung her head and the camp director looked past her to share a knowing glance with the head of security and me. We are used to the delirium of the epidemic patients. 
This patient was not sick with the virus, but perhaps a habit of delirium had taken root. Our training is to respond to the person, not the delusion. The head of security made a start. Why didn't you apply for a job here? Why did you pretend to be a patient? I cannot read, the patient answered. I have no education, no training. Before the epidemic, I never left my village. I could never get a job here. Although females in the village often cannot read, her answer perhaps had surprised the camp director. He was unusually emphatic in his objections. But you make notations on medical charts, administer narcotics intravenously. You change dressings. You are a one-person night staff for the entire ward. It is the arms, she insisted. They can do what I cannot. At her, at her answer, we all of us felt the grip of frustration. Ignoring her delusion was a poor strategy. Against our protocol, she was forcing us to respond to it. And while it is true that we live with the baobab tree in our midst, the upside-down tree that plants its branches in the soil and stretches its roots to the sky. What succeeds for the tree is no example to emulate. Turning the world on its head is not for us. And even as that resistance congealed into thought, now it was that I saw unfold there, where she sat, wings. They were enormous perhaps a half meter in length, and they were positioned oddly, affixed not to her shoulder blades as angel wings should be, but growing out from her shoulder joints from which her arms hung, because I saw now the wings were arms, gliding rapidly up and down, making the motion almost of wings in flight. The exertion of these many limbs caused her own two human arms to unwind from her abdomen and fall open at her sides while her sternum arched forward and her head tilted back like she was the Nike of Samothrace embodied. At the sight, I felt an upwelling of joy as if I had been absorbed into the ecstatic embrace of all my many 10,000 years of ancestors. An inexplicable demonstration it was of a piece with her other incredible feats, her tending to the patients with such impossible competency and of a nature to inspire the kind of trust that is called faith. The camp director, it seems, experienced the same revelation because what he said next was, owing to our budget shortfall, we can pay you only a stipend that will come as a share from my salary he held up a hand to stem her protest. I will arrange it with our accounts manager and I will make some accommodation with HR. You can begin work today, but will attend the next medical tech training. The camp director then looked at me with a commanding expression that signaled his intention to task me with some responsibility. Without knowing what it was, I nodded my assent. The camp director turned back to the patient and our logistics manager will teach you to read. It was, it was, I just thought it was so visual. Um, the arm, the wings, the arms. Um, it, it was, 
I mean, a lot of the stories were sad and they were uh, heart-wrenching, but this was really the story that was most filled with, with hope and with, be with beauty. I can see your, maybe you don't remember <laughs> what you wrote. I can see it's really <laughs> affecting you too. Um, I, just, I just thought that was beautiful writing and just so vivid, and beautifully written. So you, um, where can people get a copy of The Plague Cycle? Well, thank you for asking. Um, so Spoyton Doival has this wonderful um, website, spoytendoival.net. Okay. And, um, that and that's up. the best place to buy the book. Um, uh, it can also be purchased online on Amazon. Um, but I think it's a great thing to support independent publishers. Um, the book has distribution through Ingram. Um, so it can also be purchased at uh, brick and mortar bookshops, but probably you'll just have to ask them to order it from Ingram for, okay. for you. All right, I'll put the, all that information up for Bookstew viewers. Maya, um, your second visit was just as delightful as the first, and I can't wait to come back when your book that's being shopped around gets sold, which I'm sure <laughs> it will be. Um, thanks again for joining us on Bookstew. It was great to see you again and have you, and great to hear about the plague cycle. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eileen. Bookstew viewers, we'll see you next time, um, maybe with something that isn't as spiritually lovely, but I promise it's always interesting. Have a good night.